Welcome to No Challenges Remaining on day 11 of the U.S. Open. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend Nick McCarville on this episode. Nick, you have been in the bubble. You were just in Arthur Ashe Stadium watching these women's semifinals. First of all, thank you for being on the show to get the pleasantries out of the way. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. What was it like? By your count, you were one of 147 people. <laughs> I don't know if that counts the players or not in the stands in Arthur Ashe Stadium, a stadium which usually holds well upwards of 20,000, a cozy 147, just, you know, immediate family only. Like, I've been at bigger weddings <laughs> than that. Like, so what What was it like? Tell me about what it was like being there. You were So you were calling the first match, the Brady Osaka semifinal, but you were actually sitting in the seating bowl for Serena and Azarenka. Where were you sitting? What did it feel like? What did it sound like? Give, give me everything. I want to know what it was like. Immerse, immerse us, please. I mean, you know, par for the course, it's been the most bizarre U.S. Open ever. And being inside Arthur Ashe Stadium with 146 other people is bizarre. I mean, it really is. But I, I think it's a few things. Like, I think that the TV product, they've done a really good job. Like, you don't necessarily feel that or see that a lot on TV because they're just, I think they've got tighter shots. And, and the tennis speaks for itself, which I think has been great. We've had really good matches. Tonight yeah. was like... I love that today was the kickoff of the original nine like campaign 50 years since because it was like holy shit like that was really great women's tennis tonight yeah which was great so yeah we called the radio uh across the street in one of our broadcast studios instead of in booths um this year which was cool and so i did osaka brady which was an awesome match and then had my dinner really quick in one of the designated eating areas essentially and then made my way over to Arthur Ashe Stadium where, you know, it's highly recommended you don't eat in the open because that means mask off and what have you. I think some people do like within the suites, but those are the much more fancy people than me. <laughs> you know, the atmosphere, Ben, is, you and I were talking about it, like before we hit record, it's almost impossible to like fully describe how it feels because the tennis is still really fantastic. And tonight the intensity was really high and between Serena and Vika, it was like really fierce at times. I mean, the, the grunting and Serena trying to mount a comeback and the injury and all of that. But yeah, I, at one point I was like, okay, I, I wanna see how many people are actually in here. And I was like, I'm just gonna literally count every single person, <laughs> which I, uh, I think that's maybe one of the biggest crowds aside from Murray murray nishioka in the first round and that's mostly because a lot of production people that work in tennis are british and so if you weren't actually like in the office or working at that moment you could go because you have your credential on you have your mask on you could go watch tennis anywhere and so a lot of the brits went and watched andy murray so what's what seating is available for you in ash right now just pick a seat any seat and just you see what's not tarped off yeah, I mean, the lower bowl is pretty much no-go. I mean, that that's meant for, like, really official folks who are actually adhering to the match. Um, you know, medics, people who are working with ESPN, photographers. So we player can sit boxes, in yeah. the upper... Yeah, player boxes, that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, like, the middle bowl, which is amazing. And I always sit right above, like, the ESPN booth. So you can see the court, and you've got, like, an amazing view. Um, yeah, so that's where I was, and... I was sitting with Brian Clark and Ed Cohen. They're two play-by-play -play guys who do radio. And it was, 
it's surreal because the the tennis is as good as we've seen it at the U.S. Open, and you're still like there'll be a, a fantastically fierce point, and there's like three people clapping. I mean, it it, re- it really is strange, and so I've just been. I know that it's kind of there's a disconnect I think with the TV products because it still feels like tennis that we know because it's the sport. Mm-hmm. It's the sport, obviously, but the mental fortitude of the athletes to be self-starters this tournament is like i think it's insane like what the the actual competitors have been able to do to motivate themselves in these matches it's pretty crazy i was at the french open semifinal last year which was fondrosheva conta which was played on court simone mathieu uh, yes, which was. was the third new stadium and that was a semifinal also. And that started in front of, I think, a double-digit number of people. And that just felt sad, right? Because that was on a stadium that had never hosted a Grand Slam semifinal. It was obviously a new stadium. It never hosted anything like that. It wasn't des- supposed to. And it kind of felt like a match that was discarded off to the side in a lot of ways. Here, you're still on Ash, and it's still getting as much pageantry as they can muster for this moment. Did it feel, you've been in a lot of Grand Slam deep round matches before, does it feel like a Grand Slam semifinal? Does it feel like something lesser or does it feel like just an entirely different category of existence altogether? I think Mary put it pretty well to you guys yesterday when you had her on is that I think the players adjusted really quickly. I think maybe the first like one or two rounds, it felt really strange, but I mean, calling Brady Osaka tonight and then watching Serena Vika, like, the the feeling is there of a semifinal. Yeah, I mean, you're missing thousands of people, though. It actually, I did a little piece when I was leaving the stadium, just like a piece to camera talking about the atmosphere. And I was like, incredible atmosphere. And then I was like, what am I saying? But actually it was because they created that. Like the, the tennis was there, the intensity was there, the come-ons were there. Uh, it, it's, it, it is like we're living in a, an alternate universe. And I, I don't actually... I say that like consciously and that we are living in this weird pandemic in our everyday lives, but that tennis is now like, okay, we we have to figure out how to, how do we continue to be a sport? And I just, I think it's so fascinating that the stage is still the same, but everything around it is different. And that's why it still feels like it is, you're still watching the actors act. Like you're still watching the drama yeah. unfold, but it's, yeah, it's under such different circumstances. I think the building being the same really counts for a lot. I do think that, like, Arthur Ashe Stadium is the occasion, you know? I mean, like, when you go, you go only in there two weeks a year during the tennis season, and it's always Grand Slam. So when you're there, I think the place, you know, still is the same stakes. The same name of the tournament. Maybe Cincinnati would have been a different beast in terms of what that felt like. That's sort of transplanted. I'll transplant it somewhere bigger. I mean, it's kind of a quote-unquote upgraded to a Grand Slam site instead of being an, an ATP WTA Masters level kind of site, which is still a big, great site to be clear in Cincinnati. Yeah, it, so I guess maybe just you're not faking it that way. Compared to like the way that, I don't know how much you watch either of these two bubbles, the other sports going on right now, but like the NHL is being played still in NHL arenas. They're playing in the Maple Leafs arena in Toronto and then the Oilers arena in Edmonton, whereas the NBA is playing in like conference rooms at the Disney Resort. In Orlando, and to me, the NHL just looked. I had such an easier time clicking into NHL as a product than I did with the NBA, which just struck me as the dimensions were off for NBA, and the dimensions are not off per se for 
ash, you can still recognize it as ash, even if it's uh, very retrofitted for these times. Yeah, we kind of talked about this. I mean, this is even before the US Open, but like, how do you bubble tennis? Like Cincinnati in the US Open was one bubble and Rome and yeah. the French Open should be another bubble. Like just play Rome in Paris and not have people travel. Actually, there's no fans in Rome. No, it's, it's, it's insane. So uh, I, so then I was thinking actually like further, like, well, what if they moved the entire US Open to like the indoor center and they had LED walls like the NBA and there was, you know, no crowd whatsoever and only the player boxes. But then I think you would like really strip it of any sort of normalcy. But, I, but then I like, like I watched Lexington was the first week I like really watched tennis again. Yeah. Sorry, world team tennis. I, I just didn't, all, all the exhibitions, I, I just had a hard time like getting getting into i think you felt somewhat similar but i mm -hmm. thought lexington actually did a pretty good job of like but that was also an event that we had never seen before so right i, I mean it, it still feels like ash it's still you know the u.s open still feels like it does it is a ghost town at the, at the ntc now that the wheelchair event has started actually it feels a lot more active today like it, it felt like a new buzz versus like sunday to wednesday it was like dead zone yeah it, it's it but but i feel like we are such like humans are so adaptable like it was like after a few days like yeah. okay i mean my first few days i actually was pretty sad at the u.s open i was like why am i here this is depressing and then like after like three or four days i was like okay like we're doing this and everyone's being safe and you know mary told you guys all about that so i don't need to but like once i got embedded into it i was kind of like okay we're playing tennis I had a story that came out today about the doubles draw and just like the the, uh, the the sort of irony of trying to socially distance while keeping chemistry is with a team and stuff. And uh, Jean-Julien Royer is in the story saying that he thinks that, like tennis players are some of the most adaptable people in the world. Like, that they do changes all the time. So like it doesn't take, you know, where the surface is changing different cities every week, different opponents every day, different styles of play, whatever it may be. And so he's like, we're used to making changes. And this is just another change that, you know, yes, me and Horia Takao used to high five th literally three times between every point, but we've calmed that down. Yeah, I, 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 I have gotten used to it too. I am, I wish like you that we were here longer than with all the effort that got put into making this bubble and everything and how with only one player tested positive the whole time, I think it's a pretty good success rate and just the Benoit pair test. So it makes me nervous now that we're sort of resetting and, starting all over again really kind of from scratch in rome and then in paris again and every other week too so i would have liked to see a, a longer bubble somewhere but the u.s open one uh is near the finish line enough to where i think yeah they they made it they did it yeah and i mean i have to say from on the grounds like i and mary talked to you guys about this a little bit uh, it, the effort it has been insane. I mean, you know, the day you fill out a daily form, you get your temperature checked, we're tested every four days. Everyone has a mask on all the time. Only when you're eating, do you take it off? And people are doing it because I think everyone's like, we want this thing to happen and we want it to happen successfully, which I, I've thought I've bought in, like I'm drinking the Kool-Aid, right? Like I'm like, and of course there are arguments to be made of, you know, should this event have happened at all? Mm -hmm. But I think when you, actually look at it and the number of players that invested in coming i think that they did a pretty damn good job it has exceeded my expectations on a lot of levels most clearly on court like the play has been better than i thought it would be i really thought that a lot of players would come in with really compromised fitness or training or just attendance wouldn't be good without, out of the rust but if anything 
they a lot of them, at least the ones at the business end of this tournament, look like they had supersized off seasons. Because I always think that Australia has the best tennis of the year. So everyone's ready and healthy and good to go. And we're getting a lot of that in New York right now. I mean, no one there's been very, very few walkovers or retirements and matches. Very few, maybe like two or three total across both single straws. It's been really good. And the couple players who weren't ready, you know, like lost first round and they were out of the way. And the ones who did get going have really proven it. And the level of tennis tonight, like you said at the beginning, was so good. Like this was one of the better days. And like you mentioned with the it being a day where they started doing the original nine salutes. And I was thinking as today was happening, gosh, we got to do original nine to something on NCR before, like on their actual anniversary. So stay tuned for that, hopefully. But yeah, what a day of, uh, of tennis for you to, to witness. And I think it's been a really definitely women's tournament at least which we're mostly focusing on today has been really really solid throughout yeah I want, i'll talk about that in a second one other point i wanted to make is i actually think the bubble has like helped players in a lot of ways like i, I mean not to strip all, all of their lives away otherwise but i think it's made them like so hungry to get on court to practice and to like focus on the time when they can have their mask off and when they can feel like they're professionals and like mm. i think that it's a little bit of a, a yeah, it, it's screwing with their heads a little bit in the sense of like taking those freedoms away, but then it like makes the tennis that much more important. It's like, if you lose, then you have to like travel again and that's hard and you have to wear a mask and are you wearing a face shield and you have to get tested and like, but if you yeah. keep winning, then you get to like stay in this routine. I saw someone make that reference when in the late part of first week when Manorino was still in the tournament, but was being debated his tournament status, right? That someone said Manorino like playing for his freedom because they were like, second Manorino loses, he gets locked in a hotel room for two weeks. And so he might as well, you know, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of stakes. And I, I totally get that. Like you are, once this ends, it's sort of higher stakes in some ways because you put all this effort into being here and to doing this. And right. I think what you're saying about the practice being savored is really, really a good point because like, Normally, practice is kind of a part of your your day. It's not something players really look forward to too much per se. But today, this time, it's like you're a prisoner and it's yard time on some level. It's like it's when you get to go outside and enjoy enjoy freedom and feeling like your old self when you're in your room watching Netflix. And most of these players are not what Courtney and I would call indoor kids naturally. So uh, yeah, they would savor that. And yeah, I think and tennis has been really good. So. I think it goes back to what you're saying with Roger and the fact that tennis players are adaptable and they're also like, I, I'm here to, my job is to play and I want to stay as long as I can and I want to make it as worth it as possible and I want to make as much money as possible on this trip. And I think we saw that from, you know, I don't think the money was a factor tonight with the four women on court, but just the the commitment to like playing their very best and coming out and delivering top level tennis, it was awesome and Jen Brady has been a freaking revelation this year and this tournament and uh, Naomi Osaka has blown me away off court and on court I don't know how you how you guys have felt but I've, I've just thought that she's oh, yeah. so all business but even as she's like doing all this activism stuff which is incredible and then I just you know it would have been it would have been fun to watch Serena come back and like level that at five all in the third and like really you know really duke it out with Vika, but that match was the intensity was insane. I sent you some audio, hopefully that you can use. Yeah, yeah. let's actually put. I was actually ready right about to queue it up. Let's let's listen to what a little bit of what it sounds like hearing Vika and Serena duel it out in the third set of their semifinal in front of 147 wrapped audience members as recorded by NCR associate producer, Nick McCarville. 
I think what's most interesting about this is you can hear the intensity. So I'm sitting right above the ESPN booth. So I'm just that second section up, but first row. So you can hear the intensity, obviously, of Serena and of Vika too. And then, I mean, I'm not joking. Like, it would be the point of points, Ben. Like, ESPN, Sports Center Top 10, and there'd be like a smattering of applause. Because of those 147 people, 120 of them are working, or you know, in some capacity, are there? You're not. You're not clapping when you're there. Right? I mean, there's been a few points where I was like, "Holy shit, that was an amazing point." I'm right. gonna clap yeah. a few times, Same. but like as a commentator, no, I'm not. I'm not gonna clap. Yeah. And right. that's you know, you've got you know people who work for the USTA and officials and you know medical and and TV and whatever, and so you really turn to your box. I mean, Patrick Mortoglu clapping the whole time, Vika's box getting her pumped up the whole time. Like it, it, it could be seriously the most like highlight reel of points. And it's just like, but the players like have internalized all of that. And I actually feel like the boxes have clapped less than they would during a normal match because there's no, there's no amp, ambient noise. Like there's no sort of yeah. atmosphere to get pumped up through. And to be clear, because I think people are confused about this a little bit, the applause that we sometimes hear on the TV broadcast is all post-production, right? You don't hear that at the stadium ever. No, 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 not whatsoever. And that's what Mary was talking about with IBM and the AI and, you know, how yeah. good a point is or how long a point goes. That's what you guys are actually hearing on TV. That is, so that audio, I think, hopefully you have an applause line in there. That is what you can actually hear in the stadium after a point. You just, yeah, yeah it's just natural sound. So let's talk about the sounds and the fury of everything of this match. Let's start with Serena Azarenka, the second semifinal, which you were in the stands for. Serena came out blazing in this match, up 6-1, very quick. And I remembered I remembered how the 2013 final she was dominating too, and that kind of unraveled a bit. And I think actually 2012 was similar too. Like Serena and Vika matches have been roller coasters. So I was not, as much as it was like, wow, this is great from Serena, I wasn't expecting you know, six one six one in this match. I didn't. I didn't think that that would be. Even though they were getting close to that kind of momentum, obviously, but really, did just seem like one turn. It did seem like once Vika got her foothold, she pulled the match all the way into her control, and it was kind of like a pretty. There was one big momentum change this match, and that was kind of it. Yeah, no, you're totally right, and you could actually sense it in the stadium because towards the end of that first set, Vika started to play a little bit better, and I think Serena kind of lost lost her that like early start out of the gates, you know, blasting out of the blocks. And Vika just does, I mean, I vintage Vika has been so fun this whole tournament and Cincinnati too. She like, you could feel her pumping herself up. You could see the momentum shifting. You could see Serena, like the grunting started to get more grunty. You could see Serena kind of seeing it happen as well, but not really being fully aware of how to stop it. And I actually thought Serena, like, let it, not let it go for too long, but it just lasted too long. Like, down 3-0 on the third set, like, she, she was just down too much already. Like, it wasn't possible. Vika's too good not to let that, not to take that uh, opportunity and run with it. And um, I just, the, the hitting was immense. I thought the hitting was great. I thought Serena lost, there was some focus within that, second set Serena just kind of lost her way and I think became more concerned with like closing the match out in two sets versus just like playing good tennis and winning point mm. by point I think there was that 2-4 game that she was trying to get to 3-4 and ended up being 2-5 
and she just it, it felt like maybe that broke her back a little bit and that then i think carried over into the 3-0 deficit in the third set but you're right it was just that one momentum swing and the the digging in from vika i mean we've seen it from serena her whole career even in this tournament against sloan against Prankova, the way that she's been able to dig in in these matches but vika and the way that she fought tonight it was amazing because you could see it in her that she was like i am not going down in this match can you talk a little bit more about vintage fika what you mean what what you've seen from her and we were both around in 2012 in various degrees and i, I certainly was i was my first sort of full year on tour is when vika started the year undefeated and you know she had an interesting quote actually i'll play i'll play this here vika had an interesting answer she mentioned it hinted at it in her interview with mary joe fernandez on court which i'm guessing probably it's not piped throughout the stadium right you can't hear that yeah that's different vika was mentioned something about how back in 2012 she had a much bigger ego and how that was a factor and she and i asked her about that in press uh, tonight and then she got a follow-up about it as well so i'll put those answers in here because i thought they were pretty interesting here's vika talking about her ego which i can confirm at the time was quite sizable let's go to ben from the new york times ben you are live Hi, Vika. Hi, you made an interesting comment in your on-court interview uh, talking about your ego in 2012 or saying how you had more ego then and how it's different now. And I'm just curious, how did that ego, you think, help or hurt you back then? And how is it different for you now? What, what is it like having less ego or, or no ego, however you define your current current state as a player? Um, well, I think when you're coming up from kind of nothing, and then you become a number one player in the world, sometimes you can get, you can start to think you're invisible and that you are better than everybody, and it's not true. So the ego starts to grow, and it's very hurtful when it gets damaged. So instead of getting the ego damaged, I try to remove that and um, learn from, from my mistakes of, of, of that ego and realizing, maturing, that being a tennis player doesn't make you better or worse than anybody else, that you're still human and all you can do is be, try to be the best version of yourself and keep improving. So I try to put that aside but not when I play card games. It's still so big. God. <laughs> Thank you. My feeling is that you just said something pretty special um, where you were this great champion, number one, and you had this big ego, and you tried to sort of put it, put it away. How did you approach that? What tools did you use? How the heck did you work on that? Well, the best tools were me losing a lot of matches. That was the biggest tool that I could get. So I could continue to stay on my high horse or I could continue or I could just change it and learn from that. So, you know, I just feel I'm very proud of myself that I took that challenge from losing and turn it around and become better. And I'm not talking about a better tennis player. I'm talking about a better person for myself, for my for my son. Um, that's what that's what I'm most proud of. And did the loss to Laura uh, the, in Australia the last time you played, if I have it right, in Melbourne, that was a per particularly poignant 
loss. Uh, you had quite a moment in the press room. Do you recall that? And was that part of the process of, of coming back? Well, that was a really tough moment for me personally. And obviously, uh, I'm the kind of player and the person who shows their emotions and wear my heart on my sleeve. But at some point, you know, when things, bad things are happen to you or challenging things happen to you, you can be a victim and you can feel sorry for yourself, which I did, which I, um, you know, showing weakness is not a problem. Showing vulnerability is not a problem. Having emotions, you know, is good. But for me personally, feeling myself constantly as why things happen to me the way they happen was not beneficial. And I stopped doing that. I started taking more of responsibility for what I do, for what happens to me, and responsibility of how I'm going to react to situations. And that helped me grow. That helped me become a better person that I am today. And uh, that I think that shows on a tennis court, too. So Nick, because I was talking a lot about having grown as a person, that's very evident seeing her, having known her for these eight years in my role as someone covering her pretty closely. And as Courtney, I think, said on the last show, Vika was never totally irrelevant. Like she, the stats make it seem like she was more gone than she was, right? Seven years between Grand Slam semifinals, you would think, well, this person really fell off the earth, but she didn't. She was always around. She was always pretty relevant, pretty shortlist, kind of A-list kind of personality and player in the WTA, no matter what her ranking was, and always respected uh, as a player and as a threat. Actually, honestly, the time when it was really ebbing the most, I think, was just this year in Lexington, which was that bad loss to Venus first round. People were like, ugh, Vika, this looks rough. And then, boom, what do you know? She went to Cincinnati and makes the final of the U.S. Open right away. What are you seeing from Vika this week? And how do you think she's set up for this uh, for this final? Yeah, and when I say vintage Vika, I actually, I think she's been asked, like, somewhat a similar question in press as well. And I think that maybe she takes a little offense at it because what she was just talking about, because she's grown so much and she's changed so much. I mean it just in her tennis, the fact that she is not scared to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Serena Williams, that she's standing on the baseline, that she's hitting every ball as hard as she can, that she's redirecting, she's staying low. She believes, she backs herself. And even at the end, when she double faulted for 30 all at 3-5, she then delivers yeah. a service winner and an ace to beat Serena Williams. I, I mean, you have to back yourself and trust in the process. And yeah, I mean, 2012 was my first full year on tour too. And it was, uh, you know, Vika was felt as though she was taking over the world and she was world number one. She wins two Aussies. She made those US Open finals. I mean, you know, she really was. I did a Red Bull event with her at Wimbledon, which was very strange. And she was kind of <laughs> in that Red Bull, like that era where it was like, you know, she's this cool chick and there was the music video at one point or the dancing. I can't even remember like what all those side side dabbing. hustles were. Yeah, there was a lot of dabbing for sure. I mean, I actually, I've quite enjoyed all of it. And I think that this is about a year and a half ago, but she happened to be in New York City and her agent texted me and said, hey, Vika is super into ice skating. Can you set up a lesson for her? Right. And I work in figure skating as well, as you know. And so I texted a few of the Olympians that I work with separately who are coaches and teachers. And I ended up setting her up with Sinead Care, who is a, a British ice dancer who loves tennis. And she's like, oh my God, I'd love to do that with Vika. They went skating in Central Park. And uh, which was amazing for Sinead. I think she had a great time, but 
the couple times I saw Vika after that, she like walked up to me. She was like, thank you so much for doing that. I had the best time. Shanae was awesome. I got her tickets to this, whatever. And this US Open, I've seen her a couple times, both with Leo walking around the grounds. And she's just like, hey, how are you? I mean, just like uh, all those walls have come down. And I think that then within all of that, I this is where I think we're trying to communicate to people too, like, Tennis is really complicated. And when you're out there on a match court and trying to figure out how to bring your best self into these points, that can be really hard. And Vika has almost gotten out of her own way in a sense to find that vintage tennis that she was able to play like naturally eight years ago, because there's been a, there have been a lot of peaks and valleys for Victoria Azarenka since, yeah. since that time. There's been a lot of a lot of wounds, some self-inflicted, some some not, for her, and it's been a tough time. And seeing her come through and and be resilient and be a survivor through all this and still, still be here, still be relevant in uh, in 2020, you know, and has a real shot. I think this would be. I'd have to look. This would be the longest gap between Grand Slam finals or somebody titles, excuse me, in a long time for somebody, right? like titles seven year gap between grand slam titles in 2013 australia it would be in 2020 us open i can't think of the last time someone had seven years apart in women's tennis what was it safin was five years between the ao yeah five. and mary pierce was... ash maybe was like seven mm-hmm. also maybe yeah it was like 68 yeah but so but still this would be a little bigger i think and yeah that's the stat i'm interested to look up in the next 48 hours before this match her opponent in the final will be Naomi Osaka, who has we've known for less time for sure. Osaka really burst on the scene more meaningfully. Well, Courtney will tell you obviously she saw her in Stanford, I think, twenty fourteen when she made her run there. <laughs> oh, that's an infamous post match interview with Andrew Krasny when she beat Sammy Stos. Exactly, yes. What happened in the in the encore? What happened in the encore? I don't know that one. She said like four words. <laughs> oh, I know she's I know you've experienced her as an encore interview and she can be tough in that category in a very different way than Vika could be tough in her her day, to be sure. But Naomi Osaka has been, I think, the story of this month in tennis in this in this tournament, uh, from what she did stopping player prompting the stopping a play during the Cincinnati tournament or Western and Southern Open in New York to things she's doing with the masks and everything and oh by the way playing like dominant tennis it has her as like everybody's picked to win the tournament this match against brady tonight was great it was really really good really really pure power tennis from the women's side that's like vintage as mary carillo to mention her again would call big babe tennis like just like <laughs> two people going out there playing offensive tennis like really confident bold assertive tennis and the and it was clean and the stats were really good for both of them throughout so Different brands too. Uh, Brady plays with a lot more topspin, and Osaka hits a lot flatter. Uh, Osaka trying to go maybe through the court more, where Brady's trying to go to move the opponent around a little bit more. Uh, but what did you what did you make of uh, of this match? And first of all, of the, let's start with the match. That match was really good. It was right. the better of the two matches, quality wise. Oh, for sure. I mean, I thought so. Uh, I, uh, yeah. For sure. And actually, you know, Ed Cohen and I, I. I it was a great honor. Like it was a pleasure to be able to do it. And the the quality from the start, Jen Brady, just not like that poker face is on. And I love the, like, she's fist pumping and she's believing in herself. And I did the Putin save a match too, when she beat her mm. and my prayer circle worked for that one for Jen Brady to move on to the semifinals. But I, the quality, I think too, 
You know, for me, when you look back at like the 1990s and a lot of the big babe tennis that was originating then, it didn't really revolve around the serve and the way that this match did tonight. And the serving was exceptional, even though the service percentages weren't crazy good, they were still taking mm -hmm. care of their serve so well. And I just love that like Osaka stuck to her game plan and Jen Brady mostly stuck to her game plan. I think that maybe she got sucked into Naomi's game just a little bit. That's where that first set tie break got away from her. She lost it in the moment. And then that third set, she just lost that, lost that focus in that one game, the fourth game of the third set. But overall, the quality was amazing. The ball striking was incredible. The movement from both players. And Naomi Osaka is, uh, you know, like, <laughs> I'm just looking. She lost a set to Masaki Doi in this tournament. Like, I forgot that yeah. that happened. But since... Lost to, to Doi and to Kostiuk? Since Kostiuk was up a break, 2-1 in the third, and for some reason took an MTO to get her ankle retaped. I'm still confused by that. Naomi Osaka won the last five games of that match. She was down a, a break point at 2-1 in the third. And then she beats Contivate and Shelby Rogers, like business. She's walking on court with her briefcase. She's walking off court with her briefcase. Like she is business lady. She's in this tournament. And uh, same against Jen Brady as well. I, I think Courtney said this on our quarterfinal show, I want to say, that like Naomi wanted to show all seven masks. Like she brought seven masks. She had seven stories she wanted to tell. And I do think that is kind of like, I think she's that kind of like special person who can kind of like will that into being. You'd be like, well, I wanted to play seven matches here so I could do my seven matches and tell the seven stories. And she's that good mentally and tennis wise that she can kind of make that happen. And, and just she's a force of nature in that way. And I'm, I'm really in awe of that. Uh, she's, yeah, she's looked so much more mature than she did two years ago here. She's really grown into being a huge leader on the tour. And, I, and Mary Carillo, I think, was comparing her to Billie Jean King on our show. And I, I think those are all fitting things in the original nine movement. Not to get too carried away here, but I do think that, that Naomi is, you know, in her own way and with her own goals, really stepping up. And it's so hard. I cannot remember anybody ever having, like, a side, I don't want to call it a side project, but this is kind of dismissive of what it is, but this sort of, like, second mission while at a tournament, right? That they're actually willing, able to do and it's not in any way distracting or detracting from her on court if anything it's enhancing and just her her being able to do that i think takes a lot of a lot of mental strength and a lot of things you need to be a, a champion I, I think tennis wise i think she's my pick to to win this final on saturday i think that uh i think the matchup for azarenka is is pretty good for her i think it could be great their match at french open was great in 2018 when Osaka very, would have won the last two slams in a row. And that was a third round match, I believe, or second round maybe, maybe second. It was an early round match at the French Open. Yeah, I I think I think she's playing great. I think she's my pick. I think having Wim Fissett, who recently coached Azarenka, can't hurt for, for Naomi. And yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think this women's tournament has been really good. Uh, it could have gone not well with the depleted field we had with only four of the top 10. But, like, those last three women you had in the field were the ultimate A-listers in this tournament, right? Osaka, Serena, Azarenka, those are the three biggest stars in terms of recent stars. Venus is kind of a star emeritus. I would Forever think. star. In there. Yeah, but yeah, of course. In terms of relevant recent surging stars, it was those three. And they were the three women last, left standing in the tournament. And that was fantastic. So I think the final could be 
it should be great. I think, I mean, I think all the points you make on Osaka are fantastic. And I think that Wim Facet deserves a lot of credit there, but I also think that Naomi Osaka deserves the most credit. And I, I also think, you know, we mentioned the encore interviews and the awkwardness and she's, you know, I, I'll use the word, these are my words, quirky and different and creative and funny and funky and just all of these things that she is using the left brain. I mean, she's she's artsy and she plays video games and all of these things that I think, you know, mainstream wise, we weren't um, connecting the dots with athletes or with the people that we're used to talking to on the pro tennis tour. And honestly, Ben, I think all of that is behooving her in what she wants to stand for now. She doesn't give a flying about what anyone thinks. She is doing her own thing. She said several times that she doesn't know the reception of her Black Lives Matter activism and movement because she's living in her own bubble, within the bubble. And mm -hmm. that's fantastic. And those are the kind of leaders that we need to not care about what their reaction is going to be and just to do and act and be. And as we learned in her previous U.S. Open final in 2018, you underestimate her strength at your own peril. Like when everything is going nuts around her in the world, even just in the college of a tennis stadium, that was the craziest match. She's she's there and she she completely weathered the storm and, and on the scoreboard, at least on court, in the points was unfazed by everything that was happening around her. And it served her just as well. I was going to make the comment, it had, had been the same matchup, but I can still make it with Osaka. Osaka will have now played in like the craziest, noisiest, loudest US Open final ever, and the silent one. And I think that she is equally equipped to excel in both those very different stages. And that takes quite a person to be able to to, to do all those things, to, to make to do both of those things that well. I, I I just think her yeah, her her strength in all this is is really, really cool. I think I think too the one common thread is you know, not to say that uh, I, I think this has been misused in the past. When things are going well off the court, then everything clicks on the tennis court. That can be true sometimes. But I also think that there are there are some deep personal journeys for people to go through in their personal lives and professionally and to figure out who they are or what they are, or how they are. And I think that that does help bring out the best in people. And I think that helps bring out the best in their tennis. And I think that that's the moment that we're getting for very different moments, but similar moments for Vika and for Naomi. And the fact that they have had these different sort of roller coaster peaks and valleys adventures, obviously Vika with Leo and all the challenges she's had there in her personal life. I think that that spilled over obviously into her tennis. Naomi and trying to figure out how she's going to be a global brand and world number one and this Japanese Haitian woman who's taking on who's taking the world by the throat and trying to figure out how she wants to help both strangle it and let it breathe at the same time and and be able to really feel as though she is a part of that and I, I mean that in just an analogy sort of way. I hope it's going to be a masterful fight like what we saw we saw two masterful fights tonight. And it was fantastic to watch. And I don't, you know, I, I do want us at least to pay our due diligence to Serena and the fact that she fought her way into the semifinal. And holy shit, she is, she's such a champion. It's crazy. I wanted to get to Serena next, actually. Uh, Serena, to be clear, like, I think should just be congratulated for making the semifinals. I think it's crazy. I think it's, we've talked about this, Courtney and I have definitely talked about this on the show before, how it's so frustrating to us that Serena, instead of being in this incredible honeymoon running up the score period, 
of her career is being seen as falling short of something somehow. I think that's nuts. I think that's crazy. And that's so unfair to everyone involved. Except for Margaret Court, who I don't think we can really be unfair enough to her record of 24. I think it's a nonsense number. Uh, but anyway, Serena, where does she go from here? I guess that's my question in terms of after getting the praise, do praise out of the way. The stat for Serena I have is that Serena, uh, originally in her career, she when she when in her first 28 Grand Slam semifinal appearances, she won 21 of those tournaments, right? She was an unbelievable closer. Since then, she has made 11 semifinals and only won two titles. So you go from a 75% conversion rate, 75, to somewhere around like 18, 19%. Yeah. It's yeah. a huge drop off in terms of being able to finish at these events. I think today she just got beat by a player who was better today. I, I don't see much in terms of that she can really beat herself up over. Obviously, she's incredibly competitive and driven, but you know she respects Vika. She's lost to Vika, if not at a slam before, at big matches before. I hope she takes this in context. And I don't know if she's going to have high hopes for the French Open or not with no clay prep, but uh, she's playing, she said. So we'll see how she does there. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting one. I mean, I actually chose to watch that match in Ash tonight. I mean, I could have come back to the hotel. I could have sat here and watched it, you know, in the comfort of ESPN. And actually, you get a better, you can feel a lot more or see a lot more through the TV. You can't feel as right. much. But I was like close ups and everything. Yeah, but this was talking. And stuff, exactly. Yeah. Like this was a moment and I, I wanted to be there for it. And I loved kind of watching just like ISO. I had my own ISO cam on Serena. Like I just watched Serena and like, you know, whatever happened with the ankle thing, I don't know. People speculate, whatever, but like she was in it. She was doing high knees and pumping herself up and she kept like readjusting her hair and she was, you know, there's so many fist pumps and like she was so engaged and uh, fighting for this match. And I guess I don't quite understand and I haven't been in the press conferences this tournament to know like is 24 the driving factor or does she feel like it is or I guess I don't know where she is on that mindset but on the court Ben it feels like she is fighting because that is what she knows and wants and is that is pure Serena and I have to say that 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 is reason enough but maybe that's not what's going to get her Bring her joy uh, uh, yeah i just i do hope that she's whenever she does stop i hope that she is unbelievably at peace with her career which is a crazy thing to have to say for somebody who is a very common pick to be the goat and has 23 grand slams and there's all these record setting things and is increasingly adored by the public and everything like that and seen as a huge symbol of you know womanhood and everything like that in america like her her power is incredible I just, yeah, I, I didn't love her chances of winning this title already, I gotta say, because I thought she'd have a rough time against either Brady or Osaka, honestly, in the final, had it gotten there, because they're both playing so well, and Serena had been a little bit scrappier in her five wins, but uh, when she came out and was so good in the beginning of this match, I was like, wow, maybe Serena has this next level, maybe she can do it, and that she doesn't do it, I, you know, my heart breaks for her a bit on that. I, I know. I would, I, to, I, would, I would love to see her get 24. She's, 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 you know, she's earned it and she never got really a break. She's had some not tough, not incredibly tough draws to get to some of these finals that she's lost, to be clear. They haven't all been tough draws. If you look at who she played in the previous semis, yeah. it was like Sevastova, Stritzova, right. Gerges. A lot of first time kind of semifinalists. Who am I forgetting there? Sevastova, Gerges, Stritzova, and Svitolina. 
the four semifinals, so not the toughest semifinals anyone's ever had. But she also never got anybody really rolling over for her the way that, like, an Ash Barty did with Vondrosheva, right? Like, yeah. you kind of wish she'd gotten somebody just giving right. it to her. Right. You kind of wish. And she's kind of earned that luck, but she never I got just... it. And that's why it's so hard. And it's what makes the 23 so incredible. When you see how hard it is to win one more, the fact that she already won this these kind of intense things 23 times and no other active players. Well, Venus has seven and the next one has three. And it's a bunch of women at two. Serena has 23 23 it's an insane number i just uh, i mean you know and and you and i have been engaged in many conversations about 24 both you know offline and online and i'm i don't know i'm sure you've written about it at some point i did um i've talked about it plenty via my radio gigs and commentary and social media and what have you it's so dumb like yeah. what is so someone else did it at one point in history and now we're like banking everything off of serena's greatness because someone else I, it doesn't make sense I have, I have tried to reclaim this for her i have referred to several times as serena williams going for her open era record extending 24th grand <laughs> not record tying yeah. no 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 record extending Steffi graph was in an era that's enough apples to apples that if you want to compare them fine although that said Steffi retired at 30 or even before she turned 30 right so her career timeline was completely different than Serena's. If Steffi had wanted to keep going, she may well have won a few more. And so just, it's silly. She's great. There's no diminishing that. And I just, I just, it's frustrating for me that the sort of fifth act of her career, which we're looking at probably is filled with so much, what would be disappointment to her. I'm sure she's disappointed. I'm sure she's crushed not to be able to get this thing that she wants to win one as a mom to do all these things. And yeah, it's, I, I, I feel bad for her but at the same time i feel silly feeling bad for serena williams because she shouldn't feel bad for her <laughs> but I, no, I, I know she does and, and that's why that's why she's so much more successful than i am in every category of life <laughs> but i think and you know here we are two white guys talking about and, and we are not athletes we are far from athletes but i i think like you had your day in in, in montana nick don't diminish yourself you were you were king of those montana courts 2003 state runner up everybody yeah <laughs> yeah um no i just i think it actually connects back to you know that drive for 24 and we look at where vika and naomi are and they're being driven by uh, they're not being driven by a number and i'm not saying that serena's being driven by a number but just like there's a lot of different dynamics at play and I think that that tension you can feel out on court. I actually thought that no crowd really helped Serena this U.S. Open. I agree. I thought I agree. I, 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 there was no distraction. There was no pomp and circumstance. It was just like go out and play play tennis. I think it helped her. And I also do think it helped her opponents at the same time. Like I do think a Parankova, for example, would she have come as close to doing that match with a full crowd rooting for Serena? I don't know. Yeah, I just – and I, I don't – I think I'm a, a torn on it, obviously, because I'm struggling to find the words. But I, I think that there's just so many different dynamics at play. And she so badly wants the 24. But of course she does, because she wants to win another slam. Like, you can't blame her for that. But I, I think that there's just a lot of different forces at work with Serena. And if it happens, great. And if it doesn't happen, I agree with you. I hope that she can figure out how to end her career in a way that makes her serena williams the most happy because that's all i mean quite honestly as a person and as a journalist that's all i want for her to finish out her career with his happiness 
to wrap up, you mentioned the moment, obviously, you were in Ash tonight, for which I'm sure you'll remember for a long time. Are there any other sort of moments of surreal uh, Ghost Town U.S. Open, anything like that that you're going to, that will stick with you if you have any anecdotes to share? Yeah, I mean, just kind of the Ghost Town in general, I think really truly the moment for me that was like the most symbolic is um murray against nishioka and i actually had been calling a match earlier and went to have lunch in the food court which was ghost town central i mean there's literally no one among those hundreds of white picnic tables over by armstrong and i watched murray on the big screen that is set up there they had it running and you could actually hear it on the grounds like people cheering inside the stadium and it was kind of the one i really think the one moment that the tournament stopped i mean tonight was probably comparable but there's fewer people around there's so many people still around on day two yeah, yeah this was day yeah. two and so and there was like so much build up and nishioka took that two sets to love lead and it just felt like i mean yoshi's so good i actually thought he was going to close that but the way that murray fought back through it i i thought you could hear it and it was usually you have those moments like a million times in a slam you know it's like court 12 and everyone's like oh checking their app like what just happened on court 12 or grandstand or what have you i mean it it it's still surreal like even tonight i i was up in ash i had done the u.s open a, a podcast hit for them before the women's semis and then i was walking uh, around the concourse to go to the radio studio and i like almost bumped into naomi osaka like running back and forth on the concourse to get warmed up for a match but there's all these tv cameras following her and i'm like in my mask and I, I almost ran into her but it's like holy shit like you're getting ready for a grand sem semi-final and like i'm walking to go do my radio shift like it just and seeing seeing the players like there's a couple times i watched novak practice and i was literally the only person stood at the fence and mm. uh, you know i mean even like at indian wells when we get there and like the grounds aren't quite open yet like there's still going to be dozens of people like milling about that are going to be watching these practices and that i think that was probably the most surreal thing is the practice courts that whole bank of of stands that i think people will know of and the fence where a lot of fans get autographs and that kind of stuff i mean serena novak i watched Sverev practice one day like just no no one and because if you're credentialed, you're working on site. And if you're not, if you're not working, then you're not there because you're so, yeah. And I, I think seeing when we would commentate different matches, you know, going from one court to the next, whether it be for world feed or for radio, literally uh, every time I'd be like, oh, like, oh, people are going to realize this is a good match. And then they're going to come out. Oh, wait, there's no crowd like no one's yeah. gonna come over to this court because there's no one here and it's just the coach and the chair umpire i mean dimitrov fuchovic like uh, amazing five set match that we called uh, the end of on radio and it was literally just their two camps and them like fist pumping looking at them from the sideline being like come on you can do this francis tiafo and john millman too like that yeah. would have been a grandstand match with eight thousand people going wild and uh, I mean, I think honestly, Ben, like that'll, that'll stick with me. And I, I'm, I don't feel like I've done a good job of verbalizing to you, like the feeling of it, but it, it's just been this sort of like alt reality, sort of like Grand Slam tennis, but in a different universe. But I think in a way that's at once both like corrupted, but also like purified, 
right? Like you're you just have it stripped so down to the bare essentials of the tournament thinking during a pandemic. What is the least amount of people we can do? And obviously they increased entourage a little bit and they they bent a little bit towards a little bit of allowing people on site. But what is the least we can do to still have a Grand Slam tournament? And yeah, it's going to be, whenever it all gets back to quote unquote normal, a lot of things are going to be like, wow, this is a lot of bells and whistles and extraneous things. And even if fans are should, are not extraneous to the tennis experience at all, in actuality, it's just going to be a, a yeah different different thing to see it all reset. The the I hope it's all back to normal. I hope people can go see tennis and be safe in the world and go about their lives soon. Uh, but it has been it has been interesting. As someone who was, like you sort of alluded to, openly very skeptical about whether or not these tournaments should happen. And I still have my gosh, I still have my doubts about this whole French Open situation fastly, quickly approaching with uh, thousands of fans on site. And the players don't seem to get it because they're all referring to whether or not the players will be kept separate from the fans. My issue is the fans mixing with each other. I don't really care about the players in this scenario. I, want, I don't want people congregating in these big numbers in a country with no vaccine that's having spiking numbers again. So that's my issue on the French Open, to be clear. But yeah, I, I'm I'm I am jealous that you got to go, Nick. I I do think that it would have been such a cool experience. We were both. The only thing I can think of that was comparable at all with my life is, and I've been to some like weird small tournaments. I've been to like the Landisville Challenger at some point. But uh, the only thing that I can remember having in my career that's at all comparable, I think, is when both of us were there actually at the Sochi Olympics. And at least me, I was staying out in. Well, I think the whole town thing was in this small Russian town of Adler, Russia, which is like a border town on the border of Russia and the breakaway Republic of Abkhazia. And you felt like you're just in the complete middle of nowhere and everything is just mud and stray dogs. And it's all very odd. But um, and we're kind of like all in it together. We felt like in that in that in those dorms they built for the Sochi Olympics, it was a very like interesting journey to a completely different place. And I'm sure that's. That's the only thing I have. It's at all close to what the U.S. Open. I imagine. I feel like I imagine there's a lot of like, you look around at those 147 people in the stadium. You're like, we're all kind of in, seeing something pretty special together. Like, you know, this is kind of a, a cool thing to have been a, a part of this incredibly exclusive tennis club in this moment. I would think. Yeah, I mean, I like I never do this. I like took a couple selfie videos of me just like my face and like you know my mask. Literally, my mask is on watching. And then flipped the camera and showed a point of tennis. And I won't, that's not for a tweet or anything. That's just for me to have. Cause okay. like, I was going to say, it was like Nick not being like, I don't take selfies. I was like, I've seen your Insta stories. You take plenty of selfies. Oh, I take too many selfies. No, I just mean for my records of like, right. I was literally there when. And I actually, it reminds me of like being, I mean, I've covered some random Fed and Davis Cups in certain places which sometimes you feel like no one else is paying attention to right um no this is by far uh, for me astronomically different than anything anything and and i think everyone i think everyone on the commentary team certainly feels much the same well thank you very much nick for taking time out of your astronomical voyage to join us here on ncr taking us to the stars and beyond we look forward to the rest of this women's tournament. I think the men have a lot to live up to tomorrow. I think the women set a very high bar from the semis. So good luck to Pablo Karenia Sasha Zverev, Dominic Team, and Daniil Medvedev on trying to match what the women did because I think that it was, yeah, uh, <laughs> it was great. Best of luck, boys. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. With that, thank you very much, Nick. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ben. So thank you again to Nick McCarville for being on NCR on day 11 of the U.S. Open. And thank you all for listening so much. 
Thank you all, especially to our supporters on our Patreon, patreon.com slash no challenges remaining is where you find us there. We have five new patrons to introduce and thank during this episode who've signed on in our last 24 hours since our Mary Carrillo episode, which hopefully people enjoyed. I know Mary's always a highlight for me, so hopefully she drove some of this generosity as well. Philip Fowler, Ann Fisher, Hal Moore, Jaime Juan, and Tom McNally. Thank you to all five of them for joining on. And thank you, as always, to our Patreon Slam Champ backers, who we thank on every episode. They include Liz Kennel, Jonathan Weinbaum, Mary Carrillo, Leah Williams, Chuang Nguyen, Betty, Audrey Wellens, Sean Mulroy, Joseph Haar, Susanna W., and Antonio Maycumber. And last but most, our goat backers, Mike charles cena and j-o-d you can also follow us on twitter at ncr underscore tennis and leave us reviews on itunes and whatever podcast apps that actually helps a lot uh, gets more people to hear the show also recommend the show to your tennis fan friends if you've enjoyed what we've been doing at the u.s open or, or before or okay with it at least and you want to share it with a tennis fan friend uh word of mouth recommendations also help us tons so we appreciate those as well. You can also word of mouth into our inbox on email, no challenges remaining at gmail.com. That will do it for us. Not much runway left on the US Open, but still a lot of exemplary supermodel stuff to look forward to. Bye, guys. And What's so, sorry, oh, go ahead. Well, just fantastic ball striking from Naomi Campbell. She's put her foot down on the accelerator in this tie break and is executing perfectly. I'm, I'm sure Naomi Campbell, the model, is, is watching. Annabelle. <laughs> <laughs> but it's Naomi Osaka with five set points. Did you say Campbell? You did. did it's okay. really? It's fine. That's extraordinary. Where did that come from? Just, it's just the excitement of all this.